What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast. I'm here in our New York office today. We had the pleasure of attending our organizational communications summit. And as such, uh, one of the participants, Mike Marinello, who is the SVP of Strategic Communications at Turner, and to clarify, the broadcast company, not the construction company, as Mike tells us. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Aaron, for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And it's sort of, I don't want to say ironic, but it's its uh, fun because of the fact that, I want to say it was maybe four years ago, you and I actually did a fireside chat in this very building, in that same room we are in today. So I get to interview you in front of I don't know, 40 or 50 people. I think it was part of like social media week or something like it, that. It was. And um, that was also, though, and not only in front of 40 people, but it was also, I think, videotaped and live streamed. So the good thing about this conversation today is that, as my wife always tells me, I have, I have a face for podcasts. So so it works out well. Yeah. Um, so you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about your career. And you've had an interesting career in the fact that you started in you know politics. And that's not completely rare, I don't think, for folks that end up in the communications world. But one of the things that did strike me is, um, and I had known this before, but you had the opportunity to work with a couple of fairly major players. It wasn't like a local, you know, small town mayor or a local, you know, state senator. Um, your first official role, at least that you have on LinkedIn, was you were the special assistant to Senator Moynihan here in New York. And then you became the press secretary um, to Senator Bob Kerry of Nebraska before moving into tech and media. So let's talk a little bit about how your roots in politics have helped you over the last 17 years. Sure. There's some there's some sort of obvious points that um, that have been just very practical from a tactical standpoint, which is, you know, you the always on mode, um, understanding how to deal with crises and sort of, you know, a quick moving environments and how to adapt and how to um, understand, you know, the different media channels that you need to use. You know, back then it was not, you know, social, digital, you know, um, uh, as much as it was radio, television and print, but you still needed to know how to use the different channels and had to have a multi-channel strategy. So it was very helpful in that regard. Again, crisis and always on, having to know how to research, how to build relationships with reporters, how to build relationships with what were other senators or members of Congress. But when you think about the practicality of that now, it's either partners or other companies doing similar things. So there was a lot of practical applications. The thing that was the greatest takeaway from my political experience and actually took me a longer time to actually realize this was that um, the um, value it had in me understanding brand. And when you think about it, when you're working for a member of Congress, they are brands. Uh, they are companies, they are brands, they are individuals. Um, so they have a brand narrative, they have a brand look and feel, they have all the trappings that a brand would have, but they are individuals representing you know, populations. Uh, you don't always think about that. And I always never, I, I never thought about it in those terms uh, until I actually got into the, into the sort of the private sector and started to realize the similar applications of what I was doing for brands were very similar to what I was doing when I was working for a member of Congress. Well, that's a great answer. And, and I think there are probably more people that could benefit from working in politics before they work in, you know, in the, the real world or into, in the um, private sector. Uh, and speaking of, after you did your political um, gig, you spent four years at GCI, which was an agency. We were reminiscing about that last night yeah. with a, a few of the folks at the dinner. Yeah. 
uh, before you took uh, on PR comms roles at BD and then Microsoft. And so in particular, since I think everyone always likes to hear more about Microsoft, I believe you were there from 2007 to 2011. So post Bill Gates being CEO, bombers in play, uh, I think Microsoft was still doing pretty well during that time. But I remember I changed jobs during this. 2008 was the like end of 2008 was sort of the absolute nadir. And it was a holy shit kind of moment. Yeah. Talk about living through that at you know one of the largest tech companies in the world and what that meant to you guys. Yeah, it was a very interesting time to be at Microsoft because it was actually just, I think, the last six months of Bill's reign. And so it was known that he was leaving and Bomber was taking over. So it was very interesting to see sort of the legacy transition aspects of that. Um, I also started working in a new function at Microsoft, which was I worked for the General Counsel on Intellectual Property and Licensing Communications and um, and, and and Strategy. And so um, it was a very interesting time to be there. I think what the folks at Microsoft knew that not a lot of other folks knew was that the tide was about to change. They had just gone through a lot with the European Union. They had passed the DOJ, which I had actually worked on for Microsoft as a consultant seven years prior, right off the hill on the DO, on their DOJ situation. Um, and what happened was there was a new sense of pride and urgency around the products. I think they'd taken and been beaten up a lot on the product side too. It was after Vista and a lot of the things that had happened. And so there was this there was this sort of bubbling optimism that the rest of the world didn't quite see yet, but um, that you could sort of feel that was palpable there. And there was a strategy and there was a plan. And it was very uh, exciting to be there at that point in time. And I also was lucky enough because I was working on a unique um, on a unique project around intellectual property that actually, which was not my intention, I actually got to work with Bill Gates on a couple of things. Um, primarily, t uh, primarily um, it was an interview he was doing with Malcolm Gladwell around intellectual property for The New Yorker. And so um, it was very interesting to do all the prep work and the sort of research and then ask BS to staff, Bill at the time, along with his, uh, his lead comms guy, Larry Cohn, uh, who, had, who had recruited me there. But the interesting thing about the Malcolm Gladwell uh, interview was that Malcolm also said, after we, can, after we finish this New Yorker interview, I'm gonna inter I'd like to talk to you about this book I'm working on. And we're going to interview... You know, blah, blah, blah. And so long story short, it turns out that that interview that Bill had given Malcolm, which I was sitting right next to him for, was the book he was the interview he gave for Outliers. And so I love that book for no other reason, because when I'm reading the Bill Gates section, I was actually sitting next to Bill when he gave that interview. So that was well, that's an awesome story on both fronts, because I knew that um, Bill was stepping out of the scene right around the time you were coming on board. So it's amazing that you were able to cross over with him. So add one more sort of. Uh, giant to your your you know portfolio uh but the fact that you know outliers was a great book as well and that's a really cool story but to your point about the but the business that you know so after i did the intellectual property stuff i got to work i was then asked to and was recruited to go work um for office and that came out of the work i'd done on the intellectual property side because i was involved in a couple of significant deals primarily and i wrote about this um I don't write often, but I wrote about this around the 10th anniversary of the launch of the cell phone because one of the deals I worked on was when uh, Apple licensed uh, Exchange from Microsoft so that you, so the iPhone could actually be enterprise credible and something that you could use as a business device, just not as a as a toy or product of leisure. And that was, you know, a, a significant moment in the path of both Microsoft and the path of Apple at the time in the iPhone. So it was. That that then led me over to Office, and Office was an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting time to be at Office because the company was starting to realize that 
Office was a $26 billion applications platform, whereas Windows was about an $8 billion operating system. And there was a sea change happening, both culturally, business-wise, and engagement-wise. And one of the things that I saw and worked uh, through at Office under the leadership of then Office Chief Marketing Officer Chris Capicello, who now is Chief Marketing Officer for all of Microsoft, was that you know, we had to start thinking of ourselves in a different way. And one of the things I learned from Chris was that um, Office was an application, and therefore we were, we were operating system agnostic. We wanted to be wherever our customers were. And so we were working on iOS and Android and all those other platforms. And so that was a really interesting uh, thing to be a part of and see. Well, and that's a huge change, right? And I think you were one of the first large tech companies to really start to push hard into the enterprise space, having come more from the consumer space. But at the same time, I think this is around the time at least that Xbox was getting, you know, R&D'd and getting ready to launch off the ground, which some may argue is the future of Microsoft now because it's a, you know, complete entertainment gaming streaming platform. Right. If you think about the nexus of the timing was when both Office took off and Xbox was taking off. And you're absolutely right. Xbox more so than Office is the future, but both are going to or continue to be significant drivers of the company's success. Yeah, as much as people talk about, you know, Google taking over and Microsoft going away, I don't see it happening. Didn't happen. Anytime, so. It didn't happen. So let's make our next pivot where you sort of left this job and went and took what seems like it was an incredibly cool job, and that was um, focusing at Bloomberg on the philanthropic arm. Um, one of the stories that you told, and I hope I got this right, and, and, and we will talk more about the job, but um, you sort of went from, I'm assuming, an army of agency people and resources at Microsoft to really being a one-man band because I think, as you said, when you're working nonprofit, even if it's at a big-time company, then you end up you know, scrappy, scrappy. So what was that transition like and what did you learn going through that? Probably going a little bit back to your political days. Yeah, well, actually, I, I enjoyed it because there was, a, you know, there was a hearkening back to the political days and the scrappiness of it. But, you know, um, it was very entrepreneurial. And I've um, never been an uh, entrepreneur capitally where I've gone off and started and run my own thing. But I've always had the opportunity to be entrepreneurial within bigger companies or organizations. So what was wonderful in being asked to help launch um Mike's uh, philanthropic organization, Bloomberg Philanthropies, was that we sort of had, you know, we had to be scrappy. We had to, you know, make it, we had to do it from scratch. We had to um, sort of, uh, you know, we had to, you know, pull all the resources together and drive and not just have a strategy and a plan, but we had to execute as well. So it was, a, it was an exciting time. It was a, and it was a fun time. And, and actually one of the things I enjoyed was that I had a very big team at Microsoft that was Microsoft and then had a big agency team and I sort of had gotten away from the practitioner side. And so this was a way to get back into the game and exercise my chops. And that's something that Gary Greats uh, always told me that, you know, it's always good to sort of get back in the game because, you know, you get rusty and almost irrelevant. And that was sort of a wonderful thing of that job and that opportunity. Well, and I think as a communicator or a marketer, and I came up on the marketing side, if you aren't being a practitioner, it is hard to stay in touch with current trends. And as we know, things change so quickly which tees up the next segment, and that is you told another story today about, you know, everybody wants to see their name in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and I think you had mentioned Michael Bloomberg was particularly interested in you getting his philanthropic arm in the uh, New York Times, and you said, after banging your head against yeah. the wall for a while, I have a different solution. Yeah, no, it was, very, it was actually a very specific piece. It was around, so um, Mike is one of the, I think not one of, Mike is the largest funder of uh, anti-tobacco work globally. 
and he doesn't do it specifically, but he funds a bunch of different organizations. And so he'd been doing it sort of on the slide for a while, and not on the slide because he didn't want recognition, but uh, on the slide not because he was trying to be sneaky, but because he actually didn't want the self-recognition. He just wanted the work to get done. And so one of the, so uh, we were coming up on the eighth year anniversary of his engagement and work in this space. And so um, we felt as part of launching Philanthropies that it was also time to share with the world the impact of his eight years of investment and, and action in this area. So um, we decided it was time to announce these results and activities uh, via a, an op-ed. And so um, unfortunately, uh, Mike, well, Mike was still mayor at the time, and unfortunately for us, there was very few publications on the planet who wanted to hear from him other than what he was doing as mayor or from a political standpoint. And so uh, we had a very, we had a very well-written, thought-out, impactful piece that no one would print uh, and no one would publish. And so what we, what we decided to do was use the power of his social platforms, which at the time, he does have two million followers now on Twitter. At the time, he had about a half a million. And he did have his own website. And so we took the opportunity to say, you know what? Let's be creative here. Let's self-publish. Um, uh, there was no spot on his website that he had a place to have his own voice, so created a In My Own Voice section. And this is a little bit novel on this day. This is 2012, 2013. 11, or, 2011, yeah. early 2011. So we created a, a, a place on his website so that called In My Own Voice where, where Mike could self-publish. Um, and then we decided that we would use the power of, uh, even back then, which is why I go the social media handles, to not only spread the word and reach that audience, but then also put a tiny spend behind it to see what we could do from an application standpoint. Well, that's awesome. And, and I think it's one of those things where it seems like an, not innocent enough, like a, um, a small story, but it's a big story because I think it really translates into the way people need to be thinking about it today. And we had a couple of other voices. I won't sort of spill names, but they talked about the idea of instead of going after that big Wall Street Journal or New York Times article that sometimes it was focusing, you know, locally and getting your CEO or getting your people out more local. And that really does actually do a tremendous amount. And I think sometimes people get drawn into the, you know, bright, shiny object sure. versus the, the blocking and tackling. Sure. And I think what, you know, and I think it was also, we talked about it before, like I think we also were in a situation where we had the opportunity to be entrepreneurial. Um, and we had to, you know, how to, instead of just, you know, beating our heads against the wall because we had to get this in the Wall Street Journal, we figured let's be creative and figure out how to get it somewhere else. And so we did it. That was, you know, that. And, uh, you know, my dad always told me desperation is the, is the mother of invention, right? Um, and so I, I think that there was a little of that going on as well. Well, I am a big believer in that. And by the way, if you hear ice clinking in the background, it might be because Michael and I are enjoying some uh, brown water together. Just we had a long day today, and this was, this is one of the promises. Um, so I do want to move forward. You did spend time after that at uh, Bloomberg proper. So uh, focusing on, uh, let's see, it was technology, brand, and um, sustainability. sustainability. Thank you. And uh, this is something I think you've carried through, I know, to your current role at Turner, specifically the technology piece. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like, what does it mean to be working at media and obviously back then financial services companies, but having this focus on technology, especially as the head of strate or the SVP of strategic comms? Well, <clears throat> so an interesting challenge. Uh, I'll go back to the Bloomberg situation briefly to sort of set up the and the understanding around the Turner was that 
Um, I originally was brought over to the company to help uh, run communications for the Bloomberg Terminal and their enterprise business, which is you know a software platform and, and other sort of enterprise products. Um, but what I realized quickly, which I didn't, even though I knew Mike and I knew the company for years, I didn't realize how deep a technology company it was and how important that was to the brand and how it was not being communicated. And people either thought Bloomberg was a media company or a finance company, and people had no idea what was behind it, and they didn't understand the terminal and sort of the deep technology. Second largest pri private cloud in the world uh, that they that runs over there at Bloomberg. So, you know, and just a you know multiple other things. But so I saw the opportunity to, um, you know, reposition the way that the company uh, talked about itself and the way that audiences perceived them both internally and externally by really emphasizing what was going on from a technology standpoint and a cool technology standpoint. That was the great thing. I remember talking to the CTO um, and the head of R&D and they said, is this possible? Can we really make this happen? I said, absolutely, because we don't have to make up stories. Like what you guys are doing is cool and people just don't know it. And we have to tell those stories because that's going to help you. That's going to help reputationally. That's going to help with the business. And ultimately, it's going to help you hire the people you need to go forward. And so fast forward to Turner. And the challenge now um, and the import of technology for Turner is that there's massive disruption in the entertainment and content creation space. Um, you know, I cited this stat a couple of minutes ago back in the back in the room, but you know, there's more TV there's more TV created consumption going on now than ever before. The problem is that it's not being watched on TV, therefore it's not being properly monetized. And why is that? It's because all of the devices and operating systems and platforms out there that people can view content on that aren't necessarily controlled pathway by uh, the pathways aren't necessarily controlled by the companies who are creating the content. Primarily, they're controlled by Google and Facebook. And so there's a race now to get technologically um, savvy and whether it's related to applications, uh, delivery of content, or data and analytics, so that you can have a, you can have more control over the customer experience, um, and so that you can have a better sense of who your customers are, what they're watching, why they're watching it, when they're watching it, so that when you're trying to monetize that with your with your advertisers, um, you can you can you know have better information for them, so that their advertisements have better value. So, the challenge for us right now at Turner is how do you compete with Facebook and Google? Uh, in a way that's not just uh, around uh, sort of online space, but around content, around the technology, and around the experience you're providing. Because now they're getting into the original content business too. They're creating content, you know, creating channels and pathways and shows to deliver content to folks. So the the competition is now dual. It's not just on the ad serving side, but it's the content side, and technology is driving that. I didn't include this question, but you brought up something that I'd love to pick your brain on, which is around the advertising model. So it is harder and harder for folks like you guys, the content studios that are creating all this great content. And if it is getting streamed, obviously you can have deals with Netflix and Amazon, et cetera, but you don't have the same rich TV deals that you had maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Might there be an opportunity? I know we do this thing called product placement, but might we have an opportunity to go back to the old fashioned soap opera days, which were called soap operas because you had someone like a delivered by soap, right? Right. right, they, they right stood right. up at the beginning and said, Hey, we're going to bring this to you commercial free. But, you know, is there an opportunity for more uh, brands to come in and get involved in sponsoring content because maybe it's something that it doesn't necessarily directly tell their story, but it sort of helps associate their brands with that content that they're putting out there. So I will say, first of all, I will say that yes, absolutely. And I'm not an expert in this side of the business for 
Turner, but I, it is absolutely happening. Uh, exploring new ways of, you know, of uh, creating a great content and and engagement with our advertisers that allows for monetization to happen in all different ways. I think another thing that we're exploring is. Um, is actually a reduction of ad load in our linear television delivery so that what you're doing is you are not only creating opportunities for creatives to now if you go if you're a creative and you work at HBO and you want to do a show for HBO there's no ads so i think the run on a half hour show is actually 26 minutes of creative and i think that it's nominally less if you work on linear television because it might be 22 minutes or yeah, 23 minutes or yeah. 23 so it's 22 minutes so what we're starting to do with some of our networks is reduce the ad load so that the creatives can now create content for the same run that you would for an HBO, right? Therefore, attracting more creative talent. On the flip side, you're making the advertising time more valuable because it's only it's limited and so it becomes more valuable to the advertisers. So we're playing around with a lot of that true TV specifically and it's doing very well. So there's that. Funny you mentioned the sort of the placement, product placement uh, uh, sort of approach, and I created an entire group at Bloomberg that did that. It was an entertainment group, um, and the reason uh, I created that group uh, at Bloomberg was because part of my challenge was to get technolo our technology and the Bloomberg name and brand out in front of as many people as possible to sort of raise awareness and close that gap. Um, and we did the research that showed that one of the best ways to close informational gaps is to use popular culture and popular media and popular culture. So I created um, an entertainment group that partnered with television shows and movie productions um, to use either Bloomberg technology or Bloomberg um, uh, talent um, on on their in their production, so that um, you know one we could become part of the story, and two we could get brand recognition, and three we could raise awareness. Now the interesting thing was the model I created was a partnership model. We did not pay for any placements. It was a strategic partnership, so that. Um, the television production or the movie production thought of us as a valued strategic partner that lended credibility to their brand, and therefore our association with them and their association us was mutually beneficial. So um, I think there's a lot. I think there's a huge runway for that, and you, I think you're seeing it everywhere. Yeah, and I'm excited to see more of it because I do feel like that is the future, and people can continue to do great advertising. It just has to. There's a little bit higher bar, and it requires a little more thought both from a partnership perspective as well as a entertainment perspective. Right, and I have, I have um, four favorite plugs, if I will, from my Bloomberg experience. One, if you're a fan of The Newsroom and Aaron Sorkin, watch season three, um, where Olivia Munn's character, Sloan, um, uses a Bloomberg terminal throughout the arc of her. That, well, that yeah. was, thank you, that was one of, that was one of our, cool. that was one of our proof of concepts. We worked with the, the folks at Billions. Um, also a favorite so, show. And we were basically, I always say this, but it's a, a bit of an overstatement. We didn't build Axe Capital, but we helped build the, the entire set for Axe Capital with Bloomberg screens, terminals, content. Um, so that's when, and then we were strategically placed into uh, the storylines as a result. And then another one was uh, the, the, the most fun I ever had was working with Silicon Valley and getting um, Bloomberg Tech, which is our technology television broadcast, um, into the show as sort of, we called it in-world, where we would interview the real characters and such and talk about who we, as a real stock. And so, and getting to meet and work with those guys were a great time. So um, it's also a lot of fun, by the way. It's a great business plan, but if you want to try to figure out how to have fun and also do well for your brand and your business, that's a 
that's a good way that's to go. Way, it's like me doing podcasting, right? I get to meet really smart, interesting people. All right, we will get into our last um, few questions, and these are more sort of about you versus your your career. Now, you've had the opportunity, and you added one to this, to work with Senators Moynihan and Kerry. You've worked with Michael Bloomberg. You've worked with Bill Gates, <laughs> apparently. Uh, anyone that's influenced you, you know, over your career, clearly, I would guess all four of these folks have in some way, shape, or form, but, you know, any past boss, colleague, professor, author, you know, parent in your life that you can cite? Yeah, I think I think all of them, um, because I had I was fortunate enough to actually work directly with them and get to be understand them. I, someone who's not on that list, uh, but also um, I would say two people who aren't that on that list. Um, I got to work closely with Bill Clinton when he, not when he was president, but when um, I was working with Mike on the philanthropic side um, and his passion for uh, um, uh, sustainability and climate action was was really uh, palpable and um, he uh, he you know t to see him someone who was done being president was running you know the Clinton Foundation and could have um, you know just sort of walked away into the sunshine and to, to sit in meetings with him to hear him talk passionately about why what we were doing with cities and sustainability and impact on climate was inspirational to, to see his he was truly committed to public service right and so that was important and then another one was um, when i was at uh, edelman i got to work with mike deaver who mike deaver was ronald reagan's communications director and the great communicator and 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 mike was the man behind ronald reagan and why uh what i learned from him in a short period of time around um, communications was significant and one of the great lessons I learned from Mike was that some of the best pieces that you can write don't try to answer questions they ask questions and it completely flipped my mindset around writing opinion pieces or even testimony is that instead of trying to pretend to have the answer it's actually you might get to the root cause faster if you ask the right questions. Um, so those are two pretty significant. Um, Good ads and, and a great list in general. I mean, you could do worse than yeah. Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say of all my bosses, and I'm not just, uh, I'd say though Mike, working for Mike was definitely, I'd say Pat Moynihan to start and working for Mike were the two biggest influences for me. That's cool. Um, I'm jealous, <laughs> officially. <laughs> Uh, so two should questions. Should I say Bob Pearson too? Just to say make, I'll say Bob Pearson yeah. too. Just Bob didn't out. get a lo enough love today. <laughs> yeah. uh, so two questions I also like to ask. One is, you know, I like to pick people's brains about their reading lists, and I know you actually took the time to write down a few books along with the the authors. So you know, books that you've read recently that were interesting to you that you'd like to share with the audience. Sure. So I think so. There's three, and uh, Aaron's absolutely right. I wrote them down because I wanted to make sure I got the title and the author right. Um, so I'm reading. Climate of Hope, which is uh, something that was written by Mike Bloomberg and Carl Pope, who's the former head of the Sierra Club. And it's talking about things that are happening right now that should make us feel good about addressing the issues of climate change. Um, and that how that we should actually not worry because nation states and international bodies and, and, and federal governments have failed for the last 20 years. But there's a whole group of, there's groups of cities and nonprofits and all these other areas that are actually tackling the issues and actually private sector that are actually tackling these issues. So if anyone's feeling really bad about climate change, and we should be worried, um, Climate of Hope is exactly what that is. It sort of gives you insight into a lot of things that are happening that doesn't get a lot of attention. So I'd recommend that. Um, another uh, favorite book of mine that I've actually just read for the third time 
in the last year is a book called The Professor and the President by Stephen Hess. Um, and it's a book about my former boss, Senator Moynihan, uh, and his time as uh, head of urban policy for Republican uh, President Richard Nixon. And it was during a very tumultuous time uh, in U.S. history, not unlike what we're going through right now. Um, and you couldn't look at two people who were more different and on the opposite ends of a political of the political spectrum, but yet they worked together on some very key issues where they found commonality to do some very significant things um, in, in a time where you know it was Vietnam and it was Watergate, and it, it's a and it's a it's a really almost it's another sort of book of hope when you think about you know current political situations and just the dynamic in the world that you can actually that people actually can come together and and get things done and and actually do it in a way that they have mutual admiration for each other even if they're on the opposite sides of the spectrum um, and then finally the other book I'm reading for fun because the other two are pretty deep <laughs> um, is uh, it's a book called the new dialogue and it's uh, listening and reconnecting in a digital world and it's by Damon Krakowski, and I will be honest, I had not heard of it, knew about it, but my wife got it for me for Christmas because she knows me very well. And there's a picture of a vinyl album on the cover. Um, and it really talks about, in this day and age of so much noise and, you know, and so, and so much stimuli and how um, returning to some of the more analog things in our life are good both you know, in theory and in practice. And uh, it's it's a it's a great book and it's a fun read, especially because it talks about things as directly as you know albums. A, a great thing that um, I got into I got a turntable from my wife for Christmas a couple of years ago, and um, I, I was living in Seattle at the time. And there's a huge vinyl culture out there, so it was fun. But moving back to New York, one of the things that I found is that the vinyl culture is sort of caught on here. And um, my son and I, my 15-year-old, once every once a month, we'll go to a vinyl store and we'll, I'll let him buy one album, and I'll buy one album. And and also, it's taught me that a lot of these changes in society are, are learned behaviors. My kids think listening to vinyl is cool. They love it. Um, um, they also listen to MP3 and Spotify, Spotify and everything else, right? But I think it's lear it's learned behavior. So. I think um, it's also inspirational in the sense of seeing that, you know, some of the things that we loved uh, and found valuable uh, can also be, be loved and found valuable by the next generation if they're exposed to it. Yeah. Well, that's a good lead into our last question. And it is part of why I asked the question is because I have nostalgia around albums. My 18-year-old daughter and I have gotten back into vinyl together. And so I like to ask all my guests, and it's always fun to see how people answer. You know, ex imagine you're on a deserted island you have only one album to listen to. Ideally, not a greatest hits, but uh, we do let people cheat. Which one would it be, and why? Um, so it's a tough question because you know I love I love I'm a music uh, I'm a music geek. As you know, I'm a drummer. I'm in bands. I my dad was a drummer. I'm a you know uh, there's so many like Frank Sinatra albums or Pearl Jam albums that I could, but there's one album that I love because it basically spans all the genres of music in this one, all the genres of music that I like in this one album. And it's an album called We Get Requests by the Oscar, Peter Oscar Peterson Trio. And um, it, uh, it's um, it, in a very short, it's not a very long album too, which is probably a bad one to pick because <laughs> it's, probably, you know, it's only like 28 minutes. So I should have picked like The Wall, which at least kept me busy for two hours, right? But um, it, it in a very short period of time, through about 12 songs, um, it takes you through sort of the, the, the 
the entire scope of 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 music, uh, modern day um, jazz, um, you know, bebop. They don't play any rock and roll songs, but there are songs that they play that feel very much like rock and punk, even though it's a jazz trio. And um, to me, like if I had to listen to one record for eternity, it would be that because it sort of ticks off each of the genres I like. That's great. No, and and like I said. I don't necessarily even care what the end result is. It's the process that people use to get there. And I'm just always amazed. And so uh, get that album, too, by the way. Yes, you love it. You love I'm, it. I'm going to try it out now. Well, thank you. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What's Know podcast show. Uh, I had the pleasure today of talking to my friend and um, the SVP of Strategic Communications at Turner, Mike Marinello. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. Thanks for having me. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.